Today, uh, I've got Dr. Andrew Gurman with us. Uh, he's part of our congregation. And uh, <laughs> about time I introduced you. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, just sitting there like a random. Okay. Uh, and I've asked, uh, I, I want to interview him um, today because we've got a refer- there's two referendums that we're voting on in this election. Um, and um, I was having a chat with someone in our congregation um, who's doing some, some good research around these two referendums. And I just was like, well done, mate, you know, for doing that. And he says, these, and his exact words were something along the lines of, they weren't exact, <laughs> his words were, um, these, are, these are too big, they're too big not to engage with deeply and properly. Um, and so it's really important that we, we look at these. Now, we aren't going to be talking from the front around the cannabis, um, around the cannabis referendum, but I'm going to fire out an email this not this week, I'm going to be on holiday this week, next week. So please don't vote, don't do early voting before you've read the stuff they say. You're not allowed to vote this week, uh, but the following week you can after you've read the email. And so I'm just going to send out some resources just to help you make an informed decision there. Um, but we're not going to go there uh, within a public talk like this. Um, but we are going to talk about the end of life referendum today, which ties in with last week's talk around the sanctity of life. And uh, the reason partly that I want to do this far more publicly is because the referendum for the cannabis one um, uh, is different in the sense that then there's a whole process that's going to happen around the outcome of that referendum, around select committees uh, and around you know um, public submissions and all that sort of stuff. The difference with the end of life bill is that all of that has been done and this is the final final thing and the exact words are actually um, that if you support, you know, you, you choose yes I support or no I don't support the end of life choice act 2019 coming into force. So coming into force means that the act would start operating as law in New Zealand. So it's a, it's a far bigger decision and it's a far more important uh, vote uh, as far, in terms of where the process is at. Um, and so I've invited Andrew Gurman um, and I'm going to have a chat with him. Now Andrew Gurman um, has a lot of letters next to his name, um, <laughs> Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery, Diploma in Child Health and he's a fellow of the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine. How many years have you studied, do you reckon, total? Uh, since oh, probably <laughs> in total 16, I think. 16 years of study. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so after school, yeah, yeah. Yeah, after, yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I reckon you got ripped off because it says a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery. I've got a Bachelor of Ministry and I studied, <laughs> oh, I, I stayed for three years. You got 16 years. <laughs> Slight probably income difference is true. Um, but we're both dealing with lives. Sorry, Come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tweet that. Um, He's the emergency medicine consultant at the Hawke's Bay Hospital, which means you're the top doctor? No, no. I'm one of the emergency medicine consultants, so there's... But a consultant, because like yeah, I'm a, so for the average senior, Joe, senior, so you've got doctor. your doctor and then yeah. consultant. Is that right? Senior medical officer. So it's yeah. like gold elite for New Zealand. <laughs> right. yeah. If you want, yeah. Okay. Um, he's also the emergency doctor um, COVID-19 lead, so he's overseeing that for the emergency department and the emergency department ultrasound lead. Uh, he was the Christian Medical Fellowship representative to the Care Alliance from 2015 to 2017. He's presented the submission on behalf of the Christian Medical Fellowship to the Health Select Committee for the petition of uh, that, the petition for the Mary. Uh, sorry, you don't explain that. That was the <laughs> the earlier. Petition. This is why I'm a pastor. You're a doctor because I can't even I can't even read. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the petition to the Health Select Committee. 
uh, which was a few years ago. So that was before it went to the Justice Committee. Uh, yeah, it was the Health Select Committee. Right. So you I presented that one on behalf of the Christian Medical Fellowship for New Zealand. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to dive into um, dive into this. Have we got the outside? I think we've got the speaker working out there. Um, the, uh, so the referendum um, coming up is a big one. Um, I want to say this on some opening comments, and then I'm going to ask Andrew a couple of questions. If anyone, anyone's watched someone they love die, particularly die in a way that um, where there was suffering, um, then this is especially poignant for you, you know? And I just want to say just grace and peace because that's a horrible thing to have to go through. And, um, and it, in the Western world, we're shielded from seeing that much death. Um, and um, I'm in a profession where I probably see it a little bit more. This guy's in a profession where he sees it all the time. Um, but, uh, but watching someone you love die is just, a, is just not a pleasant thing at all at best-case best scenario. And so um, I know that this issue is raw for people, um, and so I just want to acknowledge that up front, that this is... Um, and secondly, it's been a brutal year. I would love it if we're just talking about God's mercy and love every Sunday. I feel like that's... And, and we're actually going to finish the year just talking about God's mercy and love. Um, uh, but there's just kind of like the perfect storm of these really serious referendum taking place that we just have to take seriously and we have to engage with. And... Um, and I hope the last couple of weeks have been helpful around, you know, my heart just to serve us as followers of Jesus to navigate these waters. And so uh, I'm sorry that it has been such heavy, heavy going for a while. Um, this is a, a really big decision. And, um, uh, and those opposed to this legislation include Hospice New Zealand, the Australian and New Zealand Society for Geriatric Medicine, the New Zealand Medical Association, Palliative Care Nurses for New Zealand, the Christian Medical Fellowship. Um, there's been 1,750 New Zealand doctors that have written an open letter saying uh, around uh, the banner doctors saying no. This is, um, there's, and there's a reason why this is the case. And so um, Andrew's done a lot of work looking at the Act. I think you've brought it with you, didn't you? Or? Uh, yeah, you but don't I've, need it. I've, I don't know, it's in my bag. Yeah. <laughs> so he's engaged um, pretty seriously with it. Um, and in my conversations with him, it's been incredibly helpful. And like I said two Sundays ago, I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus to uh, wisely work out what are the voices that we choose to come under in terms of authoritative voices, whether that's theological, whether that's scientific, whether that's medical, whether that's dental, I don't care. It's important that you, uh, that you make those decisions because we're all choosing to have our worldview shaped. And so Andrew's been one of these guys that's been helpful for me personally around how seriously should we take the COVID-19 pandemic? And if you've got questions around that, I would suggest you have a chat with him after the service, uh, um, but also around this uh, referendum. So Andrew, tell us exactly what we are voting for in this upcoming referendum. Yeah, so first of all, I just want to say these are uh, my personal views, so they're not the views of the District Health Board or the Emergency Department, just as a disclaimer. But um, yeah, so in terms of what we are voting for, so the main big difference, as, as you mentioned, is the End of Life Choice Act is actually an act that's all, it's already been passed by Parliament and it's just conditional on if there's more than 50% votes for the referendum saying, yes, I want it to go into force, then it will go into force a year after the election. So, uh, so it's not a referendum on do we in principle support end of life, choice of the end of life. Mm. Uh, it's about 
do you support this particular piece of legislation? Which, which is what's very really difficult about because it means every single New Zealander voting has to therefore think about the entirety of the Act in its whole as it is. It's a long document and it has, uh, and we have to be able to think about are there sufficient protections, what is it offering, who's going to access it, uh, and do we actually want this? Essentially we need to be almost like lawyers or politicians uh, and doctors all in one trying to decide yes we think this is uh, something we want or no this is something we don't want. So I think even that, I don't even think that information is is all that well known, but um, it's yeah certainly very significant for this piece of legislation. So in terms of what it is, so yeah, I'll just run through what it what it actually says. So, oh, yeah, I guess there's the process that's gone to create it, and then yeah, there's what you speak it to that is. because that's yeah. pretty disappointing around probably how our government has gone about getting to this point, right? Yeah. So there's been a whole lot of history about people like trying to. Yeah, bringing euthanasia in in the past, which I won't go into, but in terms of this particular piece of legislation, so it was um, brought to the Justice uh, Select Committee, uh, who then looked into it, and it was actually the most engaged in ever Select Committee for the country, so they had around 39,000 submissions, which is a lot more engaged than New Zealanders generally are with politics. Um, of those submissions, uh, 90 92% were opposed uh, to going ahead with it. Uh, eight, yeah, 8% were either for or, or neutral. Um, and so it was a huge number of submissions, and they went around, it was a huge, they went around the whole country hearing submissions. Uh, of those submissions, 20 medical uh, organisations or nursing or healthcare related uh, submitted, none of which were for uh, the legislation. Uh, some of them were neutral, most of them were against. Um, the overwhelming from disability sector was against. Um, overwhelming from, yeah, I think there were 111, uh, or more than that actually, religious organisations, none of which supported it either. So a whole lot of organisations against it, a whole lot of individuals against it in the submission process. So it was a huge process. Um, it, did, it did have, uh, on the actual committee, there were people who were for or against euthanasia, even before the whole process started, which is which is probably representative of, um, of the New Zealand population. So it made it a very difficult uh, process with the committee. So they then had to weigh up the evidence, but then they have to d decide on their recommendations. And what they actually found with this was their recommendations, they essentially it was very hard for them to make agreement on any major recommendations. So the, the recommendations they came up with were minor technical recommendations, essentially just on some of the wording about how to make it uh, yeah, slightly more robust. Um, but they weren't able to reach agreement between them on any major recommendations. So they sent it back to Parliament uh, for the third stage in Parliament to essentially decide on if there need to be any major changes or not. Um, but it was essentially, we can't reach agreement. Even though we know that the submissions are against, uh, we're going to just send it back to Parliament. So then that's what happened through the Select Committee. Um, they d yeah, then, the, then it came to, to Parliament, and that's where became even more tricky because Parliament, again, is divided and there's so much division about this issue which makes it so complex and complicated. But um, so Parliament, the, the Select Committee said we, we do think it needs to be a conscience vote in Parliament as one of their recommendations. Um, we then had a bit of politicking take place where uh, the, the, the Greens agreed to support it if there was um, removing the criteria for someone with chronic illness. Um, and leaving it only with someone with less than like a six-month terminal diagnosis. 
Uh, so that was removed, and that meant that all of the Green Party then supported it. So they weren't voting then on conscience. It was a, a party policy. Uh, and then the New Zealand First said they would... Uh, they were going to say no, and then they said, we will support it if we put it to a referendum. So that's how we've ended up with a referendum on a whole piece of completed legislation, which is something which hasn't happened before. Uh, yeah, which essentially is saying it's, yeah, it's too political for the politicians even to, to make calls on, uh, just give it back to the New Zealand public, which is, yeah. I mean, the, one of the interesting things was one of the MPs who was for the legislation uh, Louisa Wall actually voted against it uh, when it came to that final third stage because of the division that it is causing and would cause with it being a referendum to the New Zealand public. And it's, um, I mean, it's, it's not good for anyone for us all to have to be deciding on a piece of legislation which is extremely complex mm. with a simple question being, do you support the Act coming into force in the election? Yeah, which means that um, to vote, you know, with some sense of knowing what the heck you're voting for, you have to engaged with what the Act is saying because there isn't wiggle room anymore. It's like this is actually coming into law. Yeah, there's zero room for any changes. It's either going to come into law in a year's time, I think, yeah. or it won't. So what's yeah. in the Act then? So the, just the basics of it. So the basic criteria is um, that if you if you go to your doctor and you say, oh, yeah, I, I want to request assisted suicide, then uh, you have to meet certain criteria. So that's that you have to have a terminal illness that is expected with a prognosis of less than six months to live, uh, a uh, unbearable suffering related to that illness, advanced state of physical decline, uh, and then you have to express in writing that you want to uh, go ahead with um, assisted suicide or euthanasia, uh, and then those, yeah, those uh, and the there's a stipulation that it can't you can't have. Um, purely be uh, requesting it based on mental illness, uh, being of advanced age or having a disability, but that doesn't exclude you uh, from having it. So if you fit any of those categories and you get a terminal diagnosis, mm. then you are entitled to, to euthanasia. So uh, you can't do it just for those reasons, but it also doesn't prevent you. And there aren't many provisions to actually make sure you've, yeah, there's not an interaction between those two. So, And so the first one around that six months to live um, like in your doctor world, um, like is that how accurate would that be? Like, is there is there some concern around getting that wrong? Like, yes, so, I mean that's yeah. It's definitely going to be very tricky to, to decide that someone has six months to live. I'm not sure. I mean, even basic medical knowledge, if you, you don't go to your doctor and expect them to be able to say you're going to die, you know, on this date or. Uh, even within the closest month. It's uh, much more variable than that. So I think around diagnosis, there's maybe a 10% error rate. That's just even confirming you have the right diagnosis. And then prognosis, like you, how you're going to go with it, is uh, around 20% uh, tw of the time they'll get it right uh, when it's that far out. So, And that might be that you actually have a worse prognosis or a better prognosis. So, um, But it just, yeah, when you, particularly when you're at the several months time frame it's it's inaccurate mm. even I mean I can only really speak from emergency point of view even someone comes in and looking very unwell and we suspect they could be uh, close to death we sometimes don't know between hours days or even weeks mm. um, when we're looking at someone and and talking to them and their family so it's mm. uh, when it gets extrapolated out from there it becomes much much more difficult mm. and one of the concerns 
hearing that would be um, like how, how susceptible to this act being abused or um, vulnerable people who um, may be feeling pressure from their family or that side of things like do you have any thoughts around that side of things? Yeah, so the so in terms of the actual process, so um, when if you're requesting assistance, assisted suicidal euthanasia, so you you ask your uh, your doctor, the the act specifically says that the doctor then has a process they have to go through. So they have to tell you first of all that death is permanent and that you will you will die, which is important to know. Um, you have to, yeah, but then. Um, <laughs> Then the what was I saying that the uh, you they need to encourage you to talk to uh, any family members that you may want to talk to, um, but, but then they also need to tell you that you do not need to talk to any family members or anyone else about it. Um, so, which does become very difficult. So, and then the medical practitioner uh, can talk to your usual medical practitioner if the one you've gone to is not your usual medical practitioner. So, the only person that the doctors actually uh, allowed to talk to if you if a person does not want them to talk to anyone is the usual medical practitioner, uh, and that's about the extent there is of being able to really if someone doesn't is requesting it and refusing to have anyone talk to anyone else about it talk to family, that's the only person that person can that medical practitioner can talk to, so it essentially becomes like does your GP know whether you're being coerced uh, to request this? Which I mean I don't think many. GPs would be in that position to know that. So it's um, the the risk of coercion is is something that most of us doctors are very worried about. Um, I think the act's been designed, I think, for people who uh, it's almost like a best case scenario where someone wants to engage with their family and talk about it, and um, and they yeah maybe they're you know someone who is able to have not have coercion or financial stress or difficult access to services who's uh, you know, has their full powers, gets a terminal diagnosis, and then is wanting to to then talk to the medical practitioner and think about it. that's almost how it's been designed. But I think uh, the my concerns is just the the fact that not everyone fits into that category, and there are going to be people who who do have very like they don't have true choice, and that they they may f- not have access to the uh, the oncology services they need or the palliative care services they need. I mean, in Hawke's Bay, if we if you want radiotherapy, we'd need to go to Palmerston North to get it. So it's, um, I mean, there's just little things like that, which is is difficult with, with, yeah, just there will there is definitely a yeah. risk of coercion with it. And so. it puts doctors in a very full-on position where they have to make decisions that um, are really heavy. And I know that you guys have to do. I know you're an ED doctor, so like making those heavy big decisions is part of your gig, but. Um, but this seems to be another level in terms of, um, you know, making a choice that someone is going to end their life. Um, and, um, and surely this violates the Hippocratic Oath. Is it the Hippocratic? Is it like <laughs> hypocrisy? The, the hypo- hypocritical? Uh, the, the, isn't that like there's got to be some sort of violation in terms of like that side of things? Yeah, so, so it does. Um, but I wouldn't say that's the strongest argument for why I'm worried about it. Um, the Hippocratic Oath, yeah, was... Also says, you know, been to worship Apollo and. Um, <laughs> so you're saying we don't live in ancient Greece pay, anymore? <laughs> pay, pay, pay your tutor any financial needs that they have and that sort of thing. Which, uh, yeah, it's yeah. So I think we have moved on from that. But um, it, 
Edit something. Another example of that. Well, you're the doctor and I'm the pastor. <laughs> yeah, no, but what about this ancient Greece little oath that there was from back in the day? Uh, yeah, but I mean, we do need to practice ethically. And, um, yeah, so the, yeah, and even just talking about the uh, the competence side of things in the act. So there's um, the, in terms of, uh, oh, you know, so I was just trying to think about, there was a point you made about um, doctors making life and death decisions. So, it's, we do make life and death decisions, uh, which ideally we do want to be giving people uh, their full autonomy, explaining options, and that is how we operate. And if there's uh, any decisions that are yeah, equal benefit to a patient, then we do want to offer this as an option, this as an option, uh, and especially with palliative care, we're aiming to not neither prolong uh, life or uh hasten death kind of thing. So it's, it is trying to give people the, the autonomy to make those decisions uh, at all times. But um, the difficulty with, with doctors being involved and then uh, assisting with the person's death is that often we're making decisions where the, the, the outcome is are we, we're looking to, to help a patient. So it might be deciding between you know, a treatment which may have some uh, life prolonging benefit versus uh, but it'd still be difficult, say chemotherapy versus uh, not doing it where you may live less duration, um, but yeah, may have be a decision you want to make, but which is, uh, I think is, is fine when it's both are options that uh, potentially are beneficial to the patient. What's very difficult is when uh, you have to try and decide something where the person will die and it is, uh, it, it, putting that on an equal option with a, in a medical consultation is a very difficult way to, to, to practice it. So. You've mentioned the word palliative care a few times. For numpties like me, do you want to explain what palliative care actually means? Uh, so, yeah, palliative care is look, the practice, of, like the speciality of medicine where uh, people are looking after people who are dying. So in New Zealand, it's generally defined as around, a, if you have, a, there's the... Um, the surprise test is kind of the general uh, way people think about it. So if you, would you be surprised if, if you, this person were to die within the next 12 months is kind of an idea of when, when you might be appropriate for palliative care. Um, in terms of what it offers, so it's uh, generally, it's all about uh, quality of life and a holistic approach to looking after people uh, and when they are dying. So um, part of that is, is definitely pain relief medication, um, but part of it is... Also looking at all the, uh, the existential issues which, which come, and, and anyone receiving a terminal diagnosis is, it is a major, major life event, clearly, uh, and it is going to be distressing. People are going to have ups and downs. They're going to grieve uh, the process and what's going on. Um, they're going to have good days and bad days, and uh, palliative care is it's essentially the doctors and nurses who have really devoted themselves to looking after people in that really difficult time. Um, so I mean, we we do it. We have a little bit of palliative care in emergency, but it's certainly not the ideal place for it. But um, yeah, I definitely respect all the doctors and nurses that do commit to that, and they yeah they generally do will will be working through with a, a whole lot of issues with people at that time. Because I think for a lot of people that would be um, looking at voting yes, a big part of the motivation would be to see someone they love not suffer when they die, which is more of a palliative care issue. I, is that correct? Rather than like a euthanasia issue, it's actually more. So, um, so do you want to explain kind of what the um, what's different 
what's different between assisted dying, which is what they're talking about here, and kind of what would happen today in an ideal situation, and, um, and maybe a little bit unpack a little bit around access to palliative care or how that kind of looks for folks? Yeah, so um, I guess one thing to really make clear is that the, the, the process at the moment is people definitely, we encourage people to think about if they do want to do not resuscitate uh, order. So that's saying if something were to happen, I wouldn't want CPR, I wouldn't want a breathing tube uh, if, you're, if you're in uh, an advanced state of an illness. Um, and so we're definitely respecting that and actually encouraging people to think about that. Um, the other thing is we won't be practising futile medicines. So if someone comes in and it's futile, especially in New Zealand, I think doctors are very good at recognising that. And, uh, and yeah, so it's not treatment. We don't treat at all costs. And it's, um, yeah, so the, that sort of process is, is already in place. Um, the... Well, yeah, I'm trying to think of the rest of the question. Like, you know, uh, in terms of palliative care, like someone I love is dying and I don't want to see them suffer as they die. What is that? Like, what, what are my options and what sort of conversations can I have to help minimise or really get that as low as possible? So, I mean, this sort of thing I think needs, it needs a whole team of people. Um, I mean, the first thing is going to be, yeah, talking with... GP uh, and family and working through things, but the and the in terms of our, what palliative care can do is uh, providing medication in the home. So often people I think are worried with euthanasia about one of the big big things people think about is do, will I have intolerable pain is something that people definitely worry about. Um, which I mean certainly I've never seen someone dying in in, in immense pain because. You, if I'm right there, we're able to give medicine to, to treat. Um, I think access to palliative care is an issue in some areas. But the, in, in terms of that, like good palliative care service can, and like general practices, they can go, go have nurses come into the house every day, giving medicine and setting up even a syringe driver to just have a continuous in, infusion under the skin uh, that just gives a baseline level of pain relief. Um, where the aim really is that people shouldn't be suffering in pain. Um, and saying that, you can never, medicine, you can never say never. So there's always uh, going to be, a, you can't uh, say that no person is going to die, uh, that no one is ever going to die without pain. People will ha potentially have some pain in, in, the, in a palliative situation. But the, the pain which really gets people is when it's unceasing, unrelenting, unchanging pain that isn't treated. Um, and part of palliative care is really taking the edge off that um, and getting people into a place where they're comfortable. I mean, it's no secret, that, and you'd know firsthand, that, that um, the health system's pretty broken, been underfunded for way too long, um, and, um, and everyone's stretched in your world. Um, just speaking from my own personal experience, I know my mum, who was a nurse, um, was very bossy when when elderly members of our family were dying around, hey, you've got to, like, this isn't, you know, you've got to sort this out. So people have that option, eh, of, like, going, you know, this person's dying, they're, they're in pain right now, can you guys do something? Yes, and, I mean, there, there's that's partly what hospice is there for. So if, mm. if things aren't manageable at home, uh, then there's hospice is an inpatient unit, essentially, that okay, where the dedicated team is is looking after all those palliative needs. And that's, yeah. there will be palliative care doctors looking at the medication side of things and the holistic side of things. Yeah. 
uh, the family discussions. There's also going to be uh, like physiotherapists, occupational therapists looking at everything they can to, to help that person yeah. maximise uh, quality of life in, yeah. in whatever way they can. Yeah. So. I read um, Dr. Sean Dutoy, who's a um, Bible doctor, not a medical doctor, but he said, surely we can find more creative ways of responding to suffering than ending people's lives. And I thought that was a, a really good statement around um, around this particular act. Do you want to just kind of, back to the act, do you want to just speak to, I know you've spoken to a couple, but the major issues for you around this act in terms of what's making you pretty nervous about the whole thing? Yeah, so, I mean... To be honest, it's it's really the the people, the vulnerable people who could uh, get caught up in this act, which I'm worried about. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we live in a secular society. Mm. I think people, if people do want to decide that they want euthanasia, mm. that and that it works, and and that's what this act is designed to help them get, then that is, I'm, it's not up to us as Christians to be judging sure. or doing anything about that. But it's the I am more concerned about the people who. Who will be caught out? Uh, maybe because they do feel, uh, at their advanced age, they feel like a burden on uh, their family. They feel like a burden on the health system. Mm. Uh, they, I mean, there are so many different uh, potential reasons why people mm. may feel either whether it's implicit or explicit coercion. Mm. So whether it's someone specifically saying, you know, you 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 may as well be gone. You're not mm. life's not worth living, or then a person just thinking, you know, mm. I'm I'm old, I'm dying, mm. I'm I may as well not be here. Mm. I'm depressed. Mm. Just get on with it. It's I mean it's sad, but I think there will be people who almost feel like instead of it being a right to die, it's their duty to die. Right. Uh, and just by the fact that it's been there, the thing is, this law will catch a huge number of people. I mean, we all die at some point. Um, and. I'm not a doctor, we, but 100 uh, <laughs> yeah. like yeah, sort of my understanding. Yeah, uh, yeah so we will. It's we will all. Like most people will need to think about this. Few there's there are situations where you won't uh, qualify, but a lot of my majority, I think, of people will at some point need to, if it comes into force, need to think about it. And that it's a heavy burden to to start thinking. You know, mm. is it my time to say I need to? Yeah. I heard it, a story yeah. about, in, in Canada, correct me if I'm wrong, the, this law is in effect, is that right? Yeah. yeah. And I heard a story about a, a woman, I've got some friends and pastors over there, a woman who um, discovered she had cancer and then she was nervous about how honest she could be with her doctor because she didn't know how pro-euthanasia the doctor she was dealing with was. And so that put her in this horrible situation where she was starting to second-guess the motives of the doctors that were in, meant to be treating her in terms of, you know, the chemotherapy and all the rest of it. Which, um, And secondly, um, from what I've seen, and you'd know far more than me, but the, the initial act that goes through isn't the last uh, kind of uh, uh, evolution of that act, from what I can see in Europe and other places, that the limitations get broader and broader around this as um, as the years go by. Would that be correct? Yes, I mean, people... Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people on, uh, for or against the euthanasia will debate this, but it's, um, yeah, I think the, the the potential for scope creep, so it increasing in, in what's, uh, what, what effectively happens is definitely there. And I think there's two sides of that. One is um, the, the, well, one, the obvious one is if there's a, a law change, so if people decide we're going to change the law, which has happened in some jurisdictions. The other potential is um, 
just that the practical scope creep where people essentially are socialised to the idea of euthanasia as normal and then deciding, you know, the, the application of it becomes just that little bit more liberal in terms of how people uh, practice it, which, I mean, when you look at the numbers of different countries uh, each year, once it's introduced, gradually they do uh, increase. Uh, it's usually around about, I think, 25% per year. So the numbers start low, but then they just will slowly pick up. And, I mean, if you were for euthanasia, you could argue that that's people accepting it and engaging with it and it's working. Or if you're against euthanasia, you could be saying this is actually just the scope is creeping. And I think, I think it's inevitable that there is going to be an, an increase in the people accessing it. Um, and, but the other side, the, the legislative side, is uh, once you've created a, a right to euthanasia, then it's almost then you've, the people can challenge it and say it's discriminatory not to allow a certain person to, to, to access it. So um, I think when it became legal in Canada, it was like 10 days afterwards, uh, there was a challenge that it was discriminating against a certain group of people because um, because it is, because you're saying, you know, you, you yeah, we're deciding. I mean, it's extremely arbitrary to say you have six months. A doctor is essentially best guessing that you have six months to live and therefore you can access it, whereas if their best guess was you had seven months to live, you couldn't access it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... And a, a lot of the... Yeah, a lot of the criteria is just based around things where people are... Yeah, or people get get worried about their physical decline or not being able to continue their activities, um, and which does tie in a lot with the the disability side of things. And that uh, essentially, uh, it's almost a lot of the criteria in legislation often becomes like an ableist kind of viewpoint, where it's saying if you can't, uh, you know, wipe your bum or uh, do your usual activities, then uh, you should qualify for it. But at the same time, there are many people who are living with um, long-term disabilities who have great quality of life, who love their life, and it's uh, trying to define it on these criteria just becomes very tricky. And it is, I mean, it kind of is discrimination. And the, um, in New Zealand, they took it with the select committee to the Attorney General to decide if it was uh, compatible with the New Zealand Bill of Rights. And the Attorney, Attorney General said um, that... It is, except for the age criteria, uh, where their, their only recommendation was that the, the age, instead of being uh, 18 being the cutoff, should be 16 to be consistent with um, the, like, the fact that you can do so many, make, make independent health decisions when you're 16. So, which I don't think anyone's necessarily uh, proposing in New Zealand, but it just shows that legally uh, it is a, inconsistent with, um, if we're saying that you have a right to die, it's inconsistent with the Bill of Rights not to make it 16. Um, and also, I suppose, uh, from a Christian worldview, and hopefully not just from a Christian worldview, when we've got such a full-on teen suicide issue in New Zealand anyway, there is a sense where this sends a broader message to, to society that, you know, if it gets too tricky, you know, you can call it a day, which seems to me a bit of a mixed message around, you know, um, what we're trying to do there. Um, and it's also, I think, we should be rightly pretty annoyed that a whole lot of experts, 92%, said no, and the government and that select committee couldn't have the guts to actually go with that and then made it a political hot potato and now we're in this position now where there's all sorts of issues around it. And while I'm on the subject, the last thing that really bugs me <laughs> is that um, 
from what I can see and everything you've said, this is not, this is not about whether someone should suffer at the end of their life because that isn't an end-of-life bill situation. That's a palliative care situation. And, if we, and from what I've read, the palliative care guys are saying, we have been under-resourced, we would like more resource, um, which would deal with the issue that everyone's probably emotively would vote, you know, yes, I'm supportive of this because of the suffering thing. But if we take that off the table because palliative care has been well-resourced, then, you know, it changes the whole situation, doesn't it? Yeah, and so, that's for that. Um, so, yeah, hospice in New Zealand, I mean, it's 50% government funded and 50% uh, donations. So we're, it's like every other, every other specialty, I can only think of that, an ambulance that seemed to be relying on charitable donations to actually even do their daily activities. So we really haven't resourced it um, sufficiently, and yet we're still introducing this. Um, and like as you mentioned, the suicide point, I mean, New Zealand... It's the highest youth suicide in the OECD. I mean, it's a mental health crisis at the moment. Um, we actually, yeah, and I mean, in emergency, we deal f- far more with mental health issues than with um, and suicide attempts than we do with palliative care. And it's just, yeah, it's heartbreaking to think what are we going to be saying to people? Yeah, if, yeah. If, if, if someone has uh, a mental health condition and then they develop a, palli- a, a diagnosis where the doctors guesses that they are six months uh, life expectancy or less. The actual legislation then says pretty much they are entitled to, to euthanasia. And there's no provision that any actual treatment needs to be done to address their mental health, uh, to address that they've had adequate palliative care, to address their pain uh, control is adequate. There's no provisions in the Act for that. You'd hope that would happen. and that it do- I mean, doctors are caring and unlikely to be complicit in just jumping into that. But at the same time, in terms of a patient's rights point of view, if they if that's what they're requesting, then that is what they are entitled to under the Act. So there's not a huge amount of lead to stand on. And um, I mean, there is a provision in the Act uh, for a psychiatrist review, but the the, re- the the actual reasons when that comes into play is so just the basics of the uh, requesting it. There's t- you, there's two practitioners need to decide that. Uh, and sign off that they think it should go ahead. So there's the initial medical practitioner, and then they need to, to refer to the um, if they they the patients requesting it they need to refer to the skins group, uh, which is the a, a body that then essentially finds another practitioner uh, that will be had said that they're for, for euthanasia happy to go ahead with it an independent one to then sign off. And if the two of them sign off and say the patient. Uh, it's consistent that they can have euthanasia, then that goes ahead. Uh, but if either of them have concern about uh, the patient's competency, then they refer them to a psychiatrist. So, so there is the provision to refer to a psychiatrist, but the basis for that isn't based on are they d- depressed. I mean, it's it's based on are they competent. Where the the actual criteria that are defined for competency in the Act, they've said it's a very low level, basic level of competence. So it's you need to be able to understand uh, what euthanasia is and that you have a, a, a terminal illness, be able to think about it enough and re- rearrange your mind and then express that you understand what it is. Um, and that's, yeah, you know, I'm getting that. There's four different steps. It's just like they need to be able to think about it, understand it, re- like work with the information in your head and then re-express it to the doctor. So essentially if you can understand that you've got a terminal illness and you want to request euthanasia, that's about, the, that's the level of, competence that's required so it's not any further level of that you're actually 
yeah, it, there's no mental health assessment, there's no further understanding of it. And that's the reason, if they're worried about that, that they can refer to the psychiatrist. Oh, so the question was, can you make a decision before you get to the six months? So the, they've specifically said in the SAC that you can't uh, do it based on an advanced care directive. So an advanced care directive is where you say, uh, if that this is what's happening now as advanced care directives, where people say, if I uh, need to go to hospital for whatever reason and I'm sick, I don't want resuscitation. That's what would be the basis, but you can also specify a whole lot of other things on, this advance, on an advanced care directive. So we, I would encourage anyone who's unwell with chronic illness to think about an advanced care directive if you're worried that you may be in a place where you're incapacitated and can't express your wishes. But um, for this uh, act specifically says against that. Yeah. I mean, my, my main thoughts are that everyone should, I would suggest that everyone really read up on it. The basics would be just read, um, I mean, maybe it's too much. The, yeah, the basics for me is actually read the legislation because you're essentially being asked to be a legislator uh, in the election. So it's detailed and it's complex, but it's worth like, I don't know, it's, it doesn't take that long to read through it. So I would recommend that people just, it's just on the Parliament website, so you, you can just Google it um, and look through just just to know what it actually is. Um, there's, yeah, a few other resources there. So there's a book, the top, that book is by a, a journalist who just during the COVID lockdown realised she had a lot of time on her hands and went around and just asked all the key players in New Zealand and does a chapter on each of them, just interviewing them about their thoughts on it. So that's a really uh, informative book. Um, and, yeah, Risky Law uh, is a website essentially just dedicated to the specific act and what the concerns are with it. So there's plenty of resources there. Um, and there's a few other resources there as well that can be looked into. So, A couple of closing thoughts. Um uh, if this, uh, like, we'll stick this out on YouTube or whatever, if, if you want to send this to your friends, use your, whatever platform you've got, I think, just to spread the word so people know what we're voting for um, on this one. It's a huge, you know, it's a huge decision. A um, couple of closing thoughts from, from my angle as a pastor, not as a doctor. Um, as we've said, you are going to die. Be encouraged. Uh, and it, But I tell you what, yeah, hallelujah. The more that we can actually get our heads around that, the better. And as followers of Jesus, making friends with the idea that one day you're going to die is really important. Uh, because the, as a pastor, and I know we've had this conversation, uh, and I can speak on behalf of Andrew here as a doctor, the most difficult people to work with and journey alongside as they die are those that are in denial about the fact they're dying. The earlier that you can accept that one day you're going to die means that when you do get that, that news, you'll be able to journey far more gracefully and it'll be far more uh, easy on your family. But, and I'm going to finish with this in a second. And actually will result in your death being a blessing. In your death being a blessing. Um, the other thing is that uh, is we want to push back against the lie that says just because you're getting older means that you have no value in our society. Like, the, there is a, a humbling that takes place as you get older because uh, particularly, you know, guys will struggle, but I think everyone will struggle. You, you move from being the person helping to the person needing some help. And that's humbling. 
But as followers of Jesus, we want to walk in humility and actually let people serve us. It's a joy to be able to serve those uh, that, are, that are elderly and that need some, some uh, support. And my mother in particular has modeled this beautifully. As followers of Jesus, we want to look after our elderly family and friends and to uh, visit and to care and to love and to support. And, uh, and in fact, there's so much wisdom we're missing out on for those that have journeyed through all sorts of things in life. And so uh, can I encourage you to just begin thinking about the fact that you're going to die. <laughs> and I finished with this. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser's written an amazing book called Sacred Fire. It's, I'd recommend everyone reads it. And he talks about the three stages in our life. The first stage is getting your life together. Now, sadly, this is taking longer and longer and longer for a lot of people because they haven't been parented very well. So we've got a whole lot of babies, but adult babies, uh, who still don't know how to budget or who still don't know, haven't dealt with the trauma from their past or haven't, whatever, okay? But you've got to get your life together at some point. The second and hopefully the longest phase of your life is giving your life away so that you are a blessing to others. This is the Christian way. Learning to die to yourself and be a blessing to the world around you. And then the third act of our life, he would contend, is learning to give our deaths away. Giving our death away. And he says this, as Christians, we believe that Jesus lived for us and that he died for us, that he gave us both his life and his death. What we often fail to distinguish in this, however, is that there are two clear and separate movements here. Jesus gave his life for us in one movement, and he gave his death for us in another movement. In essence, he gave his life for us through his activity and his generous actions for us, and he gave his death through his passivity, through absorbing in love the helplessness, humiliations, and ultimate loneliness of dying. Like Jesus, we too are meant to give our lives away in generosity and selflessness, but we're also meant to give our deaths away, not just at the moment of our death, but in the whole process of leaving this planet in such a way that our diminishment and death is our final and perhaps greatest gift to the world. If we die well, without bitterness and without regret, the spirit we leave behind will be one that is nurturing, warm and cleansing. Now, I want to die well. And, I, I, and uh, I'm only 40, halfway through, hopefully, uh, you know, what uh, my allotted days are. But it's like already I think it's important, even at this age and wherever age you're at, to think about that. I want to die without bitterness. I want to die in such a way that I'm not in denial and making things tricky for my family. I want to die in such a way that they can love me and serve me and care for me. And I want to die in such a way that leaves a blessing over my family. And probably the greatest blessing, the, the, those closest to me that have died, particularly my godly grandfather, his death was the greatest blessing. It was a place of incredible, it was like he, literally heaven on earth in that room with him. And it was just a joy to be with him in that, in that time. And he was helpless and it was lonely and there wasn't dignity and it is humiliating and all of that. But we can die in such a way that's a blessing. And so that's the Christian worldview that we want to have. So there's, as, as we talked through things like last week, there is, um, there's the Christian ethic, which is we value life every step of the way. There is the pastoral care. How can we love those who are going through this? There's the public policy that we need to engage in. And then there's the kingdom vision. And the kingdom vision is that we would love and serve our elderly and that they would be treasured and valued. And whether they're in our family or not, we've got a, whole, we've got a big job to do church. Uh, and, and secondly, that we would die in such a way that we would be a great blessing. Amen. Let's give Andrew a big hand and thank you for his uh, wisdom there.